before we get started, I just want to uh, rejoice in the Lord for Russell's prayer. How edifying was that? After a prayer so obviously soaked in God's word like that, I just feel like maybe we could just go to lunch, you know. But no, of course, obviously we need the preaching of the word, but it was, yeah, just so edifying, so encouraging. Praise God for that. Uh, one little announcement before we jump into the sermon. I'm going to be doing one final preview of my talk for the pastor's conference. I'm going to be doing it here tonight at 5 p.m. So if any, 5 p.m. So if anyone is interested in coming to help me make that talk better, I'll be here at 5 p.m. Come and give me some good feedback. In the meantime, let's turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. If you do not have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Pew Bible in front of you. You're also welcome to take it home and read it. So as I've told you, our theme for this morning is happiness. And I want to begin just by asking you a pretty simple question, but it's only going to be meaningful for you as a listener if you try to answer it honestly. So here's the, here's the question for you. Are you happy? I don't mean, are you pretending to be happy? A lot of people, that's what they do in church, right? I don't mean, are you trying to be happy? I mean, are you truly happy? Can you honestly say that you are satisfied in your current circumstance? Uh, Maybe for some of us, a better question would be something like this. Do you think it's even possible for human beings to be truly happy? Many people don't. They think that happiness is a myth, or they think it's maybe this like biological phenomenon that creates these fleeting experiences of settledness. Maybe they think it's an illusion, you know, our conscious projecting itself out into the world, and sometimes that's a positive projection. For those who do believe in happiness but don't have it, they tend to think that they can only be happy if only. Right? That, that's the, right? I could be happy. I, I believe that happiness is a thing and I want it, but I, I'm not happy and I think I could be happy if only, and then there's some kind of like conditional statement, right? If only my circumstances were changed in such a way. If only I could kick this addiction, then I'd be happy, right? If only I could fix this relationship with my mom or my dad, then I could be happy. If only I could process this trauma from my childhood, then I'd be happy. And I'm just going to keep going down the list. If only I could get to that next level in my career, or if I could get over this health issue, or if only my politician that I want to be elected could get elected, if only I could lose this weight, if only I could fix that body part, if only I could make X amount of money, unlock this new skill, if only I could escape this current trial, isn't it, right? If I could just get through this, then I'd be okay, right? If only I could change this or that life circumstance, if only... If only I could get rid of this thorn in my flesh, then I'd be happy. 
But what if I told you that you really and truly can be happy even if your circumstances do not change in the slightest? Would you believe me if I told you that? If I told you that you can be happy even if your pay never increases, even if the baby never comes, even if the suitor that you've been pursuing is not someone that you end up married to, even if the ministry never succeeds, even if the relationship is never healed, even if the wayward child never comes home, if the promotion doesn't come, you can still be happy. I guess we'll see because that's exactly what I think God's word is going to teach us this morning. Please follow along with me in your Bibles as I read aloud from Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Lord, we are going to learn something that's, (laughs) we're going to begin to learn something in this morning's sermon that's going to take the rest of our natural lives to figure out, and we cannot do it naturally. We need supernatural help to learn what Paul has learned, the secret of contentment. So we pray that you would help us by your grace and for the glory of your name. Amen. I have four points for you this morning, note takers. Four points, here they are. Concern. Contentment, strength, and knowledge. I'll give them to you again as we go. So let's start with point number one, concern. Uh, Some people have no problem whatsoever asking for money. It just just doesn't bother them. Other people, I think of whom I'm the foremost, they loathe talking about money, and they definitely don't want to ask anybody for anything. And yet, God puts most of us, maybe all of us, at one point or another in our lives in a place where we need some kind of financial assistance, right? Even the Apostle Paul, that's what we see in this morning's text. As Paul is closing out his letter to the Philippians, he revisits the theme of his need. Look at verse 10. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, though now at length you have revived your concern for me right? You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And this is, of course, addressing Paul as a prisoner. And as a pri- it's not like being a prisoner in the United States where you go to jail and you get all of your needs taken care of. I mean, medical care, psychiatric care, you get all of your toiletries. You get- no. In, in prison during Paul's time, if he needed anything, it had to come from outside of his jailers. So he was in great need. And so as he closes out the letter, he tells the Philippians that he's rejoiced or he is rejoicing to have received more support from them because he's in prison and he needs all the help he can get. He's not embarrassed by the fact that God has providentially placed him in a position of need. 
right? It's like he's being faithful. This is where God has put him. And now the Philippians are responding, and so he's rejoicing about it. But there is a, a problem with this line of logic because Paul says, Paul says that he wouldn't really call his needs a need. Isn't that weird? He, listen to what he says again in verses 11 through 13. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. Right? So he says, I have a need, but I don't really have a need. What is he saying? I think, I think this is how you make sense of it. Paul has learned something through his suffering. And here's what he's learned. He's learned that when you have Jesus, anytime you have a need, that word need should always be put in quotation marks. The deepest possible need that any human being could ever have is to have Jesus. And if you have Jesus, then everything else beside that isn't really a need. You know, you take Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? At the base below food, water, clothing, shelter, you put Christ. That's, that's the new structure. And so, yeah, that's what Paul is saying. That's, that's kind of what's framing his conversation of contentment, which leads us to point two, contentment. So let's, let's just get right to it. No analogy, no illustration. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying... If you want to be happy, regardless of your circumstance, you have to learn something called contentment. You, you hear me? If you want to learn, well, let's, here's the pocket-sized definition of contentment. Contentment is happiness that does not change with circumstance. Which means that there is a kind of happiness that does change with circumstance. But contentment, what, what you should want, what Paul says he's learned the secret of is happiness even when your circumstances are all over the place. Now let's unpack this a little bit. The Greek word behind the English word that's rendered as contentment here, it means something like self-rule. Self-rule. This verb was used in the ancient world to speak of a man who was the master of his own house. Right? He is content. He's the self ruled man. He isn't swayed. He isn't pushed around by any kind of force. Forces external to himself or forces internal to himself. No, he rules himself. He's unshakable, immovable, unflappable. He's an oak. And this concept of contentment actually comes from the world of pagan philosophy. In Paul's day, there were basically two schools of thought on contentment. They were known as the Stoics and the Epicureans. First one's easier to say. Second one, odds of you spelling that right are pretty low. The Stoics and the Epicureans. So here's what the Stoics believed. They believed that you could learn to be happy by mastering yourself. And the way that you mastered yourself was by utterly eliminating desire. If, if I don't desire, if I don't seek pleasure... And if I'm not concerned about avoiding pain, then I will never be disappointed and I will ultimately be content. Uh, most people who pursue stoicism in this life, some variation of it, it's very difficult to maintain. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But people who tend to go down the stoic route are people who have been really seriously hurt before. right? And so they would rather deaden their desires and make themselves less human than opening themselves up to being hurt again. 
right? These are the people who are afraid to hope. I hoped before and it hurt me. I'm not going to do that again. Then you have the Epicureans. In contrast to the Stoics, the Epicureans believed that pleasure is not only good, but it should be pursued at all costs, right? So Epicurus, the father of the Epicureans, he said this, pleasure is the beginning and the end of living happily, right? And so here's what the Epicureans did. They thought, I can find happiness by pursuing pleasure in a calculated way. I have to be wise enough. I have to be smart enough. I have to be attentive enough to know if I allow this thing into my life, it's going to cause me pain. And if I embrace this thing, it's going to cause me pleasure. And so they're constantly doing moral and ethical and spiritual and emotional calculations to try to get the right balance so that they can be truly happy. Now, the thing that both of these philosophies have in common is they put the self at the center of happiness, right? They put the self at the center of, the Stoics say, I myself have to deaden my passions and then I can be happy. The Epicureans say, I have to figure out this world in such a way that I can navigate it and live happily. And then there's Paul. Paul comes along, yeah, yeah, a little golf clap for Paul, right? Paul comes along. And he takes this pagan concept of self-mastery. He's using this word on purpose. Remember his audience. A bunch of Romans, right? They're probably steeped in this way of thinking. He comes along and he flips it on its head. Right? He says, he says, well, let's look at what he says. Look at verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul does like a judo throw on this concept. He uses all of the weight and momentum and force of this idea against itself. And he says, I I really can be content, but I can't be content by trying to master myself because every time I try to master myself, I fail. I'm not strong enough to master myself. I'm not smart enough. I'm not wise enough. I don't have enough information about the world to master myself. The only way I can master myself is if I let Christ master me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. His strength has to be my strength. Now, here's my question to you this morning, Christian. Do you believe that to be true? Yeah, pastor. That's how you talk, right? Of course, of course we believe that to be true. I hope you do. At least I hope you're fighting to believe it's true because if you don't believe that this is true, You are going to spend your life, the rest of your life, no matter how long it may be. You may get hit by a bus tomorrow or you may live to be 100. If technology advances, maybe 120. But you're going to spend the rest of your life unhappy and exhausted. Unhappy and exhausted. Here's what I mean. If you are the kind of person who inclines more towards the stoic path, you'll say things like this. I let myself feel and desire and hope in the past and all I got from that was pain and hurt and suffering I'm wounded and I'm never going to do that again except that that's not possible you're you're lying to yourself you can't live like that you weren't created to be dead inside the God who made you in his image is not dead inside And even though you're ruined by sin, you can never totally, completely snuff out desires and feelings and emotions and passions. 
You can try to bottle them up. You can try to suppress them, suppress them and deaden them, but it's never going to work. You can try not to hope, but hope is this thing that you just cannot kill. It's like a cockroach. You can just try to lay waste to your heart with the nuclear bomb of anti-hope and somehow, like the grounds of Chernobyl, hope is going to rise up and blossom again in your heart. Right? There's going to be an ember of hope in the ash heap of your heart and eventually you're going to get so exhausted of trying to live as an, a non-human. Right? Living without hope, that's unhuman. You're going, to, you're going to get so exhausted from trying to do that that one day you're going to let that ember spring back to life and it's going to turn into a fire and it's going to hurt you. And it's going to hurt people around you because you don't know how to handle it. You don't know how to handle it because you've been trying to suppress it for so long. But maybe you're not the stoic. Maybe you're not the stoic. Maybe... Maybe you don't try to deaden your passions. You're, you're a smart guy. You're a smart girl. You say, that's silly, right? I know I can't do that. So what do you do? You commit the opposite error. You try to navigate your own passions. And you try to do it in your own wisdom and by your own power. You're the Epicurean. But that's just as fruitless. It's just as exhausting. Listen, you can spend, maybe I should say, you can't spend the rest of your life trying to solve the impossible puzzle of contentment. You can't even solve a Rubik's Cube. Colin, I don't want to hear it. All right? Right? Like, you can't even solve a Rubik's Cube. You think you can solve the one million-sided puzzle of human contentment in a fallen world? Of course not. I'll have a little more of this and a little more of that, and I'll take this out, and I'll add this in, and then I'll be happy, and it never works, and you just exhaust yourself. This is the only path to true happiness. This is the only way. You have to say with Paul, I cannot rule myself. I cannot figure out life. I cannot figure out this world and calculate my, myself to happiness. I cannot try to deaden my desires so that I don't even care if I'm ever happy. You can't say that. You have to say, I want to be happy. And I recognize the fact that I can't do it. And the only person to make me happy, the only way that I can be happy is if I trust in Christ alone. Only then can you say with Paul, I have learned the secret of contentment. Now you'll notice Paul doesn't just say, I've learned contentment, right? He says, I've learned the secret of contentment. And ooh, was Paul a marketing major, right? Like you add secret to something and all of a sudden people are, you know, the, the click rate just goes way up on the video. There's a secret to contentment. And... Uh, it also kind of just strikes our ear funny, right? Because in English, when we think of the word secret, we think it's something that we want to keep hidden, you know, like don't tell anyone. But the problem with that is that Paul is here telling everyone, <laughs> right? So, so maybe a better translation would be mystery, right? There's this mystery. And you know it's a mystery because everyone in life is chasing happiness, and yet it seems like no one can find it. Every worldview has an answer for how you can be happy. And yet it seems like most people are unhappy, right? Every religion has an answer to how you can be happy. The Stoics had their answer. The Epicureans had their answer. The unbelieving Jews had their answer and still have their answer. The Muslims have their answer. The secular humanists have their answer. And you may even, apart from Christ, have your own answer. 
But Paul says that the answer can only be seen by those who have eyes to see. The answer can only be grasped by those who have ears to hear. It can only be comprehended by people who have had their hearts enlightened so that when they look at Christ, they go, that's my happiness. He's my happiness. So here's, here's how that works. I want to break down the anatomy of this for you a little bit through the lens of the gospel. Humans ultimately are, un, like if you go down like all the way to the bottom, I'm not talking about superficial causes. You guys know that there are you know, several orders of causation in this life. You have superficial causation and then you have kind of fundamental causation. If you go all the way down to the deepest foundation of human experience, the fundamental reason why we are unhappy is because we are separated from God. Why? Because we have chosen sin. We've chosen to try to find happiness in the things that God has created rather than God himself. We have chosen happiness in sin rather than happiness in our Lord. And the thing about sin is that it always promises happiness and it never, ever delivers. So, you're separated from God. You can't be happy. What are you going to do to fix it? Most of the world's religions say, oh, it's easy. Just do this. X, Y, Z. Islam, five pillars. Do these. Trust me, you'll be happy in Allah. Right? Blessed will you be by the Prophet Muhammad. Right? And we just kind of go down the list. If you do these things, then you can be happy. But you cannot fix the problem of your own happiness. You're, you're not wise enough. You're not powerful enough. You're not holy enough. You need someone to fix it for you. And that is what is unique about Christianity. No other religion says God sees you in your unhappiness and he comes to you to make you happy again. He comes to you and enters into your unhappiness in order to make you happy in himself. No other world religion says you can't fix it. Only God can fix it. And the way that he does that is that he enters into our misery. He primarily entered into the deepest misery, the misery of sin, and he did it on the cross. And he, who was eternally happy as a member of the Godhead, was cut off from the Father on the cross. He was stripped of happiness. And he did that to save us from the consequences of our own sin, right? To bring us back to joy. And then God was so pleased with the work of his son and what he did to make us happy again, he resurrected him from the grave. He raised him up to the right hand and put him in a position of honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And then the son did something incredible. He called a people to himself. He saves people. He goes, you're coming with me to be happy. You're coming with me to be happy. You're coming. And then he, it doesn't stop there. You're thinking, wow, that's really incredible. It doesn't stop there. Then he goes, hey, listen, you're with me, but you're my army. You're going out on behalf of me to rescue everyone from their misery and bring them back to me. And there is an untold number that I'm going to bring back home. And we're all going to be happy in my father's house together forever. Now, how does being reunited to God make us happy? That's another question. It's so beautiful, so simple, and so beautiful. It's elegant. God is eternally happy in himself. He's happy in a way, like, think about it like this. Nothing can add to his happiness, and nothing can take away from his happiness. 
There's nothing that God can experience that will make him less happy than he is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been rejoicing and enjoying, rejoicing in and enjoying one another for all of eternity, and nothing can rob them of that joy. Nothing can add to their happiness. What can you possibly give to God that will increase his joy in himself? Nothing you give to God is greater than the gift of God's joy in himself because he is the highest good. He is the deepest joy. You can't add to him. So here's how it works. God comes along and through his son Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit, reunites you who were separated from him to himself. You come back into the very nature of God who is eternally and forever happy. You commune with the happy God. And like a blood transfusion, his happiness becomes your happiness. Except for now, nothing can ever ruin it again. Sin won't separate. What can separate us? Come on now, I'm trying. What can separate us from the love of God? The answer is nothing. Not now, not ever. This is... This is the promise of the gospel. Do you see now why Paul says, I've learned the secret of contentment? Paul is meditating on this tremendous gospel reality. He says, oh my God, literally, oh my God, look what you've done to make me happy in yourself. And then he looks out at all of his circumstances and he goes, I don't give a rip about any of this. Money comes, money goes. Enemies rise up, enemies disappear. Health is strong, health is fading. It doesn't matter. To live is Christ and to die is gain. You can't phase me. I don't lose. That's the secret. Point number three. Strength. We've, we've touched on this already, um, but let's, let's come back to it just so we can have our bearings. The clear and consistent testimony of Scripture is that we are strongest when we are weak. You get that? Listen, not when we, not when we just feel a little weak, not when people think we're weak, right? When we are actually weak, then we are our strongest. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. This is why, for Christ's sake, there's that happiness language again. I delight in my weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For, this is the reason, how can he be happy in all these things? For, when I am weak, then I am strong. This is what Paul has in mind as he pens his final letter, or his final words in his letter to the church at Ephesus. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might. He's not saying start doing a lot of bicep curls. Right? He's saying embrace your weakness so that Christ can be strong through you. And we know that this strength, it, the strength that, that we get in our weakness, it, it has to come from outside of ourselves because God calls it a grace. And we don't, grace doesn't well up from within us. Right? This is how he says it in 2 Timothy chapter 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace of that is in Christ Jesus. And this grace has a purpose. Right? There's no such thing as purpose. Why does God do any of the good things that he does for us? There's always a purpose. Here's the purpose. 2 Timothy chapter 4. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. 
so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all of the Gentiles might hear it. If you think, God, what, what I want from my life, if nothing else, all I want from my life is to be a faithful proclaimer of your message. You have to embrace your weakness. Because only through your weakness will you be strong enough to do what Paul is saying here, right? To, to fully proclaim the message. And so we, 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 we should praise God for the strength that he provides us in Jesus. We should rejoice in our weakness because we know that our suffering is an opportunity to show that God is strong. Now I say that, but you guys know I think even if you're a brand new Christian, you know that there's a difference between what we know and like what we know, like deep down all the way to our toenails, in our bones, at the bottom of our hearts, what we know, right? In theory, we know that Christ is strong in our weakness, but in practice, it feels like it's utterly impossible to actually grasp a hold of this by faith and like to cling to it in the midst of our deepest suffering, our worst circumstances on top of that there's all kinds of confusion with this verse here i can do all things through christ who strengthens me there's never been a verse that's been more misquoted uh, twisted misapplied perhaps in the whole bible than this so when paul says i can do all things through through christ who strengthens me what does he mean there by all things some people think that all things means that he'll never suffer I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, so I'll never be weak, I'll never suffer, I'll never go without, I'll never be made low. But you know that that's not what Paul is saying here, right? That's the exact opposite of what Paul is saying here. He's saying, I'm made strong exactly for the times when I am made low. Exactly for the moments when I do feel weak. Exactly for the times when I do hunger. And just go back, look at verse 11 again. Start in verse 12. I know how to be brought low. That's what the strength is for. It's so that when he's brought low, he knows how to handle it. And I know how to, what? How to abound. So here we see another interesting element to being able to do all things. Another element of being able to do all things is that you, you have to learn how to be happy when you have an abundance. Now you may be thinking, well, Sean, that's, that's silly. I'm always happy when things are in abundance. Are you? Is that true? I know when you're, <laughs> when you're low, you think that when you get abundance, happiness will be yours. But how many times have you heard the story of people who had nothing, and then they worked their whole lives to ga- gain everything, and then they get it, and they kill themselves? They get it, and they're depressed. They get it, and they're suffering. And they, you ask them, like, not the people who kill themselves, you see, but... <laughs> You try to find out, like, what, what happened? What went wrong here? And they always say, I just thought winning the Super Bowl or becoming a millionaire or having a successful company or whatever it may be, I thought that that would make me happy. And then it turned out that this thing that I was chasing my whole life, it disappointed me. So the ability to do all things, it has to include the ability to have abundance as well as to be suffering lack. And I think you see this all throughout Scripture. I'll just give you one example. Proverbs chapter 30. Listen to the wisdom of Solomon. Give me neither poverty, so that's lack, nor riches, abundance. Rather, 
Feed me with the food that is needful for me. You, you hear this echoed in Jesus' teaching on prayer, right? Give me this day my daily bread, right? Not enough bread so that I can feel safe, right? Food scarcity creates food insecurity, and food insecurity is going to rob me of my happiness. So Jesus, make me feel like I ha- give me enough food so that I can feel secure and therefore be happy. That's not, no. Give me enough food for today. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? You see that? You can have a lot and not be happy because your a lot is getting in the way of your relationship with God, who is the source of all happiness. Or, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Abundance and lack can both be a threat to our happiness. Why? Because if happiness is rooted In anything in this life, it will always disappoint you because this life is constantly changing. The only thing that is certain is God, right? When you're happy in Jesus, you're happy in the eternal, the unchanging. And what that means is that your circumstances are basically entirely irrelevant. Money comes, money goes. Children act up, children are obedient. Depression increases, depression decreases. Body is health, healthy, body is sick. Friends are faithful, friends betray and abandon. Life is hard and it hurts. Life is exciting and stimulating. When you're happy in Jesus, these things all the way down at the bottom do not change you because all the way down at the bottom of you is the unchanging God. Now, I can't move on to uh, our final point before uh, I need to highlight what I think is one pretty obvious implication of Paul's teaching on contentment here. Uh, What I want you to see here is that contentment is a temporary promise. Contentment is a temporary promise. What do I mean by that? The the promise of contentment must necessarily take into account the shifting circumstances of life in a fallen world, right? Because that's what contentment is. It's happiness regardless of your circumstances, and your, your circumstances are always changing. But the promise of happiness must necessarily transcend the promise of contentment because one day, if you belong to Christ, you will be in a place where your circumstances are not shifting. Do you see that? Does that make sense? Happiness has to transcend contentment because one day you'll be happy and your circumstances are not going to change at all for the worse. You're just going to be in the perfect presence of God forever. And yet you're still going to be happy. One day, every tear is going to be wiped away. Death is going to be dead forever. And we're going to be in heaven and we're going to have no need for the word contentment. Think about that. I don't know what language we're going to be speaking in heaven, but I know that whether it's Mandarin or English or some new heavenly language, the word contentment will not exist there. Maybe as a faint echo of a memory of a former lost, tragic world long past. Here's how Jonathan Edwards describes that world. I know it's hard to listen when people read things, But brothers and sisters, listen carefully. There, in heaven, this fountain of love 
this eternal three in one is set open to us without any obstacle to hinder access to it. You're dying of thirst. There's a fountain there. You want to get to it. In this life, there are constant obstacles. How are you going to make it there? Trying on your own power with your own wisdom, you never do. Edward says, one day we're going to be in heaven. You're going to be thirsty, and there's going to be the fountain, and there's not going to be any obstacle. There, this glorious God will be manifested, and he will shine forth in the fullness of his glory. In beams of love there, the fountain will overflow in streams and rivers of love and delight, enough for all to drink of their fill and to swim in this fountain so as to overflow the world, as it were, with a deluge of love. This is the happiness that awaits everyone who repents of trying to find happiness in this life, in themselves, in sin. So brothers and sisters and visitors alike, Christian, non-Christian, do not turn quickly away from this promise that God is holding out to you today. Do not just hear me and then dismiss me. Do not let these words go in one ear and out the other. This is the greatest promise that anyone could ever make anyone else. The promise of perfect and eternal happiness. And the God of the Bible is making it to you today. And you probably, this is so hard for you to wrap your mind around because in your mind, maybe God has always been painted to you as like a guy who's always mad and he's forever seeking to like punish you. And it's true, God's wrath is real and he disciplines those he loves and he punishes those who rebel against him. But consider this offer. This offer that says, even though you don't deserve me, I'm bringing you into the joy of my life forever. And I know for some of the Christians sitting here, this has to feel impossibly hard to listen to. It has to feel impossibly hard to grasp, not just intellectually. I know intellectually. I've spent all week on this. I've been writing and rewriting this sermon all week so I can make the words and the sentences and the paragraphs clear. I understand intellectually you may be grasping this. But I'm talking about for your heart to grab this. This, this feels impossible, especially because many of us, are going through trials, and we are wrestling with these feelings like, if God really loved me, then he would give me this thing. If God really, if what you're saying is true, Sean, if what you claim that Jesus is saying in the Bible is true, then he would take this thing out of my life so that I could finally be happy. But I promise you, brother, I promise you, sister, on the authority of God's word and the gospel itself, that whatever you have or don't have is the result of God's desire to make you happy. Some of you are terrified to believe this. You think happiness is a mirage. It's a nice idea in theory, but it can never be mine. But you are so wrong. Do not let fear crowd out hope in the offer that Jesus is making you today. For some of us, that means we need to repent of our sins and we need to repent of every attempt of trying to be happy in this life. Repent, by the way, means not only to like say I'm sorry, but to like actually recognize that we've sinned against God 
admit our sin, and then turn away from it. That's what some of us have to do here today, and we have to do it for the very first time. Others of us here this morning need something else. We need to repent for forgetting what we once knew to be true. When we got saved, and at various points throughout our ministries, throughout our walks with Jesus, we knew this to be true. Our, our life would struggle and suffer, and, and we would say, it's okay, I'm happy in Jesus. My circumstances are going up, they're going down, doesn't matter, I'm happy in Jesus. And then you got hit with the big one. Or maybe you got hit with several big ones. Or maybe you had a flush of cash, a windfall, great success, and that has been robbing you of your happiness in Jesus. Either way, your circumstances have shifted in such a way that you've forgotten this. And if that's you, you need to repent as well. And if you do, Jesus will be more than eager to invite you back into his joy. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, Sean, I'm trying. You have no idea. It's easy for you to stand up there and preach, but you have no idea what I'm going through. You have no idea what my circumstances are like. You have no idea the pain that I'm suffering. Don't I, though? Am I not human? Have I not lived through this? Do I not wrestle with this? Am I not a sinner like you? I know I'm literally standing on the high ground. But you have to know that as I say these things, I don't stand here on the moral and spiritual high ground. I say this as one struggler to another. Somebody who daily has to fight for true happiness in Jesus, who has to fight to not be affected by circumstance. And it's impossible and I lose all the time. And so I say, and I invite you to say this with me. Jesus, I believe you are my true happiness, but help me in my unbelief. There's one more thing I want to show you. I know that would be a really good place to end the sermon. But there's one practical point I just, I have to show you before we go. In verses 11 and 12, Paul said, he says it twice. He says that he learned the secret of contentment. So, so here's the last thing I want you to see. Sometimes Christians mistakenly assume that uh, contentment is something that they're just born with when they're reborn in Christ. No. You, this is not zapped into you. It's not injected into you. It's not microwaved into you or any other kind of hocus-pocus, spiritual or otherwise. It's something you have to learn. The word that Paul uses here, uh, learn, it, 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 it's like comprehensive in the Greek. It means like, Learn from seeing, learn from hearing, learn from doing. It means that the only way that you're actually going to grow in contentment in Christ is if you go through the experiences of wrestling with discontentment. You're going to have to try and fail and try and fail and try and fail and sometimes succeed. And then pretty soon you're going to find your successes growing, sometimes incrementally and barely noticeable at all, but they're going to grow. And the Lord is going to lead you through all kinds of suffering. And he's going to lead you through seasons of prosperity. And he's going to let you come within a gnat's hair of losing your happiness in Jesus before he comes along and sets you back on the path again. And then in hindsight, you're going to see. And you're going to, you're going to realize. And then you'll, I think, be able to say to your spouse, to your children, to your fellow church members, you're going to be able to say, you know, 
I think I'm learning the secret to contentment. I hope that's true. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please work this into our hearts by your grace, for the glory of your name, and in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.